the biggest thing is that you really listen. You totally listen and you also have a sense going in about who this person is and what they're what's what they're about and you're trying to find out well you know what's important to them you know who who are they and you have to you have to be like totally open and that you 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 don't come in with any kind of tone or any kind of vibe that they are under a microscope and you're looking for what's wrong about them you know so that you can scratch them off your list you know you're you're approaching it like i want you let's figure out you know what what you contribute you know and what we can contribute to you and so like you said you know you start out with trust you know that you're you're all in on this guy until you're proven wrong and he you know needs to feel that that this guy's on my side already i don't even know him but i know he's on my side Hello and welcome back to another episode of Up Close in Personnel. This week's guest is none other than author and media consultant for the San Francisco Giants, Joan Ryan. Joan, one of the first female sports columnists in the country, has covered Super Bowls, World Series, Olympics, and championship fights. She's the winner of 13 AP Sports Editor Awards, National Headliner Award, and the Women's Sports Foundation Journalism Award, among many others. And her latest work, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry, is what we talk about on this show, unearthing the insights she's learned over the course of a 10-year project. From defining team chemistry at its core principles to the different types of chemistry that exist between teams and how you create that, we really cover the entire gamut of the intangibles aspect of team building, the different types of roles people can play, all of this and more. Please get your pen and paper out. It's a great episode full of info that can help teams, players, coaches, business leaders alike. And I had a lot of fun recording it. So rate, subscribe, follow the show. Be sure to pick up her book on Amazon. It's Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. And with all that being said, we'll now switch it over to my conversation with Joan Ryan. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um. Joan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. It was fun uh, talking just before we, we jumped on air about, you know, the book and you. And can you talk about your role right now with the Giants before we get started? You know, you're a media and communications consultant with them and you work with the players and the coaches. Mm -hmm. um, but you've been doing that for the last 14 years. So talk about that role and kind of what you bring to the Giants. Sure. And well, and I'll start with, you know, my career as a sports columnist, because that's what pre prepared me for this role with the Giants. And so, you know, I start, I was a sports columnist really early in my career, like at 25. And um, at the time I was the, you know, only 
female sports columnist, you know, at a regular column um, in a major metropolitan daily. And I really loved writing about sports, even though I never set out to be a sports writer, but I loved writing about sports because it's writing about people, you know, that just happen to be in sports. And in the sports section, you know, you get to write, you know, there's not a formula for writing a sports story really. Well, at least as a columnist, you know, cause you can just really write whatever you want. You know, it's not, you're not writing a game story or whatever. And I just loved exploring, like, why did this person make it? You know, every kid growing up who plays sports, you know, thinks they're going to be, you know, Michael Jordan or, you know, Mike Trout now, you know, uh, and nobody makes it. You know, I never knew anybody growing up who ever made it to the major leagues or the NFL or, or the NBA. And I mean, it's just so rare for anybody to make it. And here I was surrounded by all these people who made it. You know, so it's like, well, what set you apart? You know, how did you make it? Not everybody else. So I loved exploring that whole human nature thing. And then um, I came out to San Francisco. That was in Florida. I started, came out to San Francisco and um, finally moved to news, you know, after doing sports for so long. And then I left in 2007, um, left the newspaper business all together for a variety of reasons and to write books. And I had a book deal at the time, not for this book though. And, um, and I thought, well, to get a regular paycheck while I'm writing books, because you know when you sign with a publisher, they pay you, but they do it in thirds you know, a third of it when you sign, and then you don't see any money until you turn in your finished manuscript. And for me, I take a really long time to write my books. I miss deadlines all over. Um, so I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a regular paycheck. So I went to the Giants who I had a good relationship with over the years, having covered them and pitched myself, you know, convinced them that they needed to hire me as their media consultant, and they did. And so for 14 years, it was great. You know, I just learned so much because now, instead of being on the outside looking in, as you are as a journalist, I was on the inside. And so in the clubhouse, in the front office, um, you know, in the dugout during batting practice, you know, all of those things. So you see, you get to see firsthand those dynamics that are happening in the clubhouse. And you do see that what happens in the clubhouse affects what happens on the field. And so, you know, I ended up, wanting to write about team chemistry. Um, actually, after going to the 20 year reunion of the 1989 team that won the National League pennant, and I could just, that was a really close team. And as I'm walking through that party tent, like catching up with those guys, cause I covered them in 1989. Um, you know, you could just see it in their faces and hear it in their voices that they still loved each other. And so, after, you know, this is a few years after Moneyball came out and everything had become analytics. And when I was driving home from that party, I just said, you know, I'm totally in on Moneyball, really, you know, respect the analytics, you know, they're essential. And there was definitely something going on with that team. There was something real going on with that team. So that's when I set out, and this was 2009, set out to, you know, just answer three questions. Does team chemistry exist? If it exists, well, what is it exactly? And how does it affect performance? Because why even you know, talk about team chemistry unless it affects performance? And 
Little did I know it would take me 10 years before my book actually was finished and published because <laughs> it's quite a complex topic. It was a very ambitious project I undertook. And, and it was 160 interviews? Yeah, about 160 interviews. And then I read, well, you read my bibliography. I don't know, it was like 30 or 40 books and then, you know, countless research papers, you know, because when you, you know, what I realized when you start to write about team chemistry, there's almost no field of research that isn't relevant. So, you know, it's evolutionary biology and neuroscience and organizational psychology, all of that falls under uh, the science of team chemistry, because I had to figure out, well, what's happening among these players? What's happening between them that results in an elevated performance? And I knew early on, it was more than camaraderie. It was more than let's all have dinner together. And it was even more than cohesion, because um, cohesion really is just a state of being. And camaraderie is just fellowship, but that has nothing to do with performance. It's nice, you know, to, to have all of that, but it's, but it's not chemistry. And a lot of people use camaraderie and cohesion interchangeably with chemistry and chemistry is an active phenomenon. And, you know, unless productivity increases, you don't have chemistry. You have camaraderie or cohesion, but you don't have chemistry. Does that kind of get at the the difference between the social and the task chemistry that you talk about? Well, that's the uh, the other huge aha in in this journey was that there's chemistry isn't always what we think it is, and there's at least at least two kinds of chemistry. There's probably more, but I found two. Um, and one is, as you said, the social emotional chemistry, which, you know, 99.9% of human beings, um, because tribalism is our most deeply rooted human behavior, um, that, that uh, the social emotional connection is just hardwired in our brain. We need it to thrive. But there are people, and I write about Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, two players who played six years together at the Giants, or at least Kent was there six years, Bonds was there a lot longer. And, you know, and two of, you know, Bleacher Report's 20 worst teammates of all time in sports history. And two of them land in the Giants clubhouse at the same time. And you think, oh my God, that's a chemistry disaster. And in fact, it wasn't, you know, they, they couldn't stand each other and they, you know, hunker down at either end of the clubhouse. They, you know, they had a fist fight in the dugout at least once in full view of the cameras. Yet, though, during those six years, that team, even though they didn't win the World Series in 2002 when they went and played the Angels, um, they won a ton of games during those six years. And in fact, both of them played some of the best baseball of their career. Certainly Kent played better than he ever had played to the point where he actually won National League MVP in 2000. And then Bonds hadn't won it like in six years. He hadn't even, he hadn't um, finished above fourth in the voting. And he will, he was always telling me, he says, well, yeah, I know I helped 
I hope Kent be better player, but he's not helping me be a better player. You know, I'm just a great player and I play and I don't need anybody outside motivation. But after Kent won the MVP in 2000, Bonds won it in 2001, 2002, 2003, and 2004. And it's like, really? Kent didn't elevate your performance. He didn't motivate you to elevate your performance because before he won it, you hadn't finished higher than fourth for a lot of years, you know? So it, it was so interesting. So I sort of identified that there are players who only need task chemistry, meaning on the field, they totally trusted each other. They totally respected that the other one cared as much about winning as they did. And when I was able to sit down and interview each one of them, they both said the same thing. There's nobody I'd rather have on the field with me, but Jeff Kent or Barry Bonds. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I mean, and obviously any team that has social emotional chemistry also has task chemistry because that's the only way you win is to have the task chemistry. Right. But for most people, it's the social emotional that feeds the task chemistry. But there are certain people, it's like Steve Jobs, you know, like Steve Jobs had no social emotional, you know, skills at all or, or even knew that that existed. But talk about him, he had task chemistry within his, um, in his field, like, of course, everybody would want Steve Jobs on their team, no matter, you know, how big a jerk he is. So that was a real aha moment that in business and in sports, that you have total trust in each other, in the work that you do together. And then you talked about the, the, the cool part. When I started reading this book that kind of hooked me in was kind of how the brain responds to it. And how many, how many different interviews with Harvard research people and, and medical <laughs> people did you have to go through? Because I mean, really kind of the way the brain reacts to trust begets trust, you know, the oxytocin, the, the dopamine release. And then on the flip side, you know, cortisol with stress is the exact opposite. So it, it really kind of reinforces the idea that if you have a trusting environment, that you know values your people you're going to get elevated results and that's kind of the end goal of, of chemistry but how totally. many how many different medical field people were you talking to <laughs> and and how how different was that talking to them versus you know you've spent your whole career talking to you know yeah. sports people you, you're in locker rooms and clubhouses <laughs> yeah. that's the part that i loved you know, because I knew a lot, obviously I knew a lot about sports. And so it's so much fun when this other world opens up to you and you go into the, the, the workings of the human brain and, it, you know, I couldn't get enough. I mean, I just kept buying book after book after book and then tracking down somebody who wrote that book and talked to them. And, and you're just like, you know, you're, I don't even know how to put it, but it, it, it's just so exciting and exhilarating to learn all these. And then, you know, like getting the answers to the questions that you had posed and it takes you in this whole other direction that you didn't expect to be taken. And also, you know, the truth is, you know, most of us like for pleasure reading or, you know, whatever, 
most of us seek out totally unconsciously, we seek out material that explains who we are, right? I'm learning about me as I'm learning all about these things. Like my relationships make sense now, right? Like who I am with this person, you know, with this friend is different. Like I'm a slightly different Joan when I'm with this person than I am with this person and who I am, you know, to my son or who I am to my husband and, um, and how I am changed in their presence. And it's such a cool thing to start to notice in all your relationships, or even if it's somebody new, you meet, you know, you sit next to somebody on an airplane and you start to notice how you are changed just in conversation, you know, like with our mirror neurons, you know, and I'm a total mirror. You know, I realize that about myself. If somebody's talking or, you know, even just facial muscles, like, you know, if somebody starts to like have like that, like all of a sudden I'm like that, I don't even know what they're going to say, but I'm already like mirroring their facial expression and getting in on whatever is exciting them at the moment. And it's just so cool to, to see that. And on the flip side, who you're around that just drains you you know, you're with them and it's just so much work to be with them. And they kind of just pull you down and, and you realize, you know, that moods are contagious, you know, and sometimes you got to put up this, like, you know, like a conscious shield around yourself just to not get infected by that mood. And so when you think about a team and in baseball, it's, you know, 25 guys, right? So you think about a baseball team, and all of that back and forth is going on every second of the day among all of those 25 guys. And you just think like, how does chemistry ever work? How does it ever sort itself out? And then you realize there's real influencers in the clubhouse or in a business that have more impact than others and kind of set a tone that others can then fall into that tone as well. And you pull, it almost becomes like, like in a great team chemistry team that it's almost like this gravitational force that bends all the players toward each other and this shared purpose. And then you've really got something. At what point when you were, you know, really diving into that Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent team, um, and you, you title that chapter, the super disruptors, right? And your mindset yeah. going into it was, okay, these two guys are the reason they didn't win a world series. And you were just talking about how they had this incredible sense of purpose together on the field. And like, they, they have this level of trust. And even if it's not like lovey dovey, like relationship off the field, like they, they were very effective together. And I got to a point in the, in that chapter where you just talked about, look, neither of these guys were disruptors because they weren't influencers. They didn't pull anybody with them. Like how, how exciting was it and how disappointing was it to get to that place where, you know, you put all these hours in and you're kind of working towards um, what you think is like your hypothesis. You're like, all right, I'm putting all the, these data points together and this is what it's probably going to look like. And you go into these interviews and it's not what you expected. Um, no. How do you? How did you adapt to that? There is nothing better for a writer 
than to be proven wrong. I mean, seriously, because you go in and you're like, okay, I'm going to follow this through. And you think, okay, all the readers too, you know, are going to know what I'm talking about. You know, they were disruptors and, you know, and I just wanted to get into the science of how that was contagious, you know, in a clubhouse. And then when you're, you know, it, it blows your mind. You're like, wait a minute, how could they not have been disruptors? And it just gets you more excited. It's like, okay, now let's look at that dynamic. How could they not have been disruptors? And then, you know, as you saw in the book, you know, that they were kind of on their island of misfit toys on either end of the, either end of the clubhouse. And certainly with bonds and this, I really, I I thought, well, I'm going to get a lot of pushback for this. And I said, that's fine. Um, That he truly was a baseball genius. Yeah. And I use genius in the full meaning of that word. And when it came to hitting a baseball, he was a savant. I mean, a total savant. And I do believe that there is a thing and, and getting back to Steve Jobs, like they're sort of the genius exemption for behavior. Like if you truly are a genius and people recognize you as, and you know, geniuses, no matter what it's in, it could be cooking, I don't know. But if you are a genius in that particular field, you're often, or in a very specific field, you're often a little different. Yeah, a little off. Rest, you're a little off, you know, because most of us are generalists. You know, we're interested in a lot of different things. None of us are like super amazing at any one thing. You know, we've got some, you know, different skill sets that we've collected over the time. But there, it's that one thing. It's just, it's almost like they're on the, you know, autism spectrum or something, you know, that they're so hyper-focused because, and they were lucky, like Barry Bonds, and this is usually how geniuses come about, that the opportunity to express your genius is available to you. So like Alex, we may be geniuses in something, but we've never come across the thing that like, it's like, oh, my actual genius now has crashed right into the opportunity to allow me to express that genius. So like for Barry Bonds, he's born into a family where his father, you know, is an all-star baseball player and his godfather is Willie frickin' Mays, right? So he's growing up. So his baseball genius was totally nurtured, totally expressed, you know, was in a clubhouse since the time he could walk. So um, so he really, he really is a genius. So his teammates, you know, he was a jerk. He was arrogant. He was rude. He was all that. And they're like, yeah, that's Barry. That's fine. We're going to create our team chemistry over here and he can be over there. And that's okay with us because he contributes so much <laughs> to our winning. And, and he's also, a, you know, we watch him hit and we're like, okay, we can learn a couple things here. The, the genius exemption rule. And how did you break the Da Vinci code? How did you break him? Because one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite parts in the whole book was kind of this dance of you and him when he had finally agreed to sit down and do an interview with you. And, you know, it's going so well and he it's, you know, a couple hours in and the light bulb goes off. He's like, Oh my God, like I'm letting my guard down. All right. How do, how do I, what's my defensive, you know, mechanism? Like I got to shut this down. I got to, I got to shut this off. 
and you worked through that and you kept him going. And I just kind of want to get into your thought process of how you interview people, because, you know, this show is a lot of geared towards, you know, recruits, recruiters, coaches. And every time I'm on the phone with the head coach of a high school kid, you know, I'm interviewing him. I'm asking him about the kid's background, about his experiences with the kid, how he interacts with his teammates. When I get on the phone with the kid, I'm interviewing that recruit for basically a job opportunity. So what goes into it? How do you prepare? um, And how do you in like course correct, right? Because sometimes you can have a a game plan, so to speak, of how you want to interview to go. And it doesn't go that way, right? Like you get an answer and you're like, well, if I go on my script, I'm going to miss a huge opportunity. Like for, for instance, today, this, this interview between you and me, I did not go about it the same way because I have like 20 pages of notes on your book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just kind of wanted to hear you talk through your process. So how do you go about that? Well, with bonds, as you said, you know, it took me an entire year to get him to sit down with me. So I luckily for me, you know, I'm in the clubhouse and he had finally kind of been brought back into the fold of the Giants as a, you know, a senior advisor and hitting consultant, you know, so he would show up at the ballpark, you know, kind of during batting practice, but he often didn't go out there. And, and so I would just start because the first time I asked him, and it was at spring training, I said, uh, said, you know, I'm doing this book on team. Ca- and we knew each other, obviously, from the years that I covered him. But obviously, we weren't, you know, or friends in any way. I said, I'm doing this book on um, team chemistry. And I would love to talk to you about that and, and see it through your eyes. And he said, you know, there's nothing, there's no team chemistry in sports. And, you know, you really should write about business. And I don't have time for that. And he just, you know, went off. Okay. So then every time I saw him at the ballpark, you know, I would just say, hey, Barry, you know, what's going on and not bring out a notebook, you know, my tape recorder, nothing. It was just talking. And then one day it was like mind blowing that he did stop. We're standing, we're in the hallway. This may not be answering your question at all, Alex, because it's not really telling you how I do my interviews, but, but it, it goes to, again, back to trust. Every relationship, no matter how brief, if you are going to have anything meaningful come out of that interaction, you have to establish that you trust and that you are trustworthy. Um, And so for Bonds, it it was about me just talking to him, not having a transaction, that I'm taking something from you for my own benefit. And so one day we, he started to just talk and we found ourselves standing in the hallway, you know, that leads to the clubhouse and we're both leaning, you know, against the wall and talking. And I don't even know what we were talking about, but um, he physically changed as I was talking to him. He turned, uh, he was no longer Barry Bonds in all caps, you know? He had become this guy, I mean, literally became this guy named Barry. And we were just talking about life, you know, and, and different things. And he was telling me about, you know, and, and that is when he said, 
you know, I can't really read. You know, I can't, I didn't put it that bluntly in the book, but, you know, he's been pretty open about it, that he basically got through school without really being able to read proficiently. And you know how smart you have to be (laughs) to get through school and what he would do. And he started talking, and my son um, has significant, significant learning disabilities. So we ended up talking about my son and Barry and that one of his daughters has learning disabilities. Anyway, it got to be this really personal um, conversation. And at the end of it, you know, I said, well, you know, I'd love to continue this conversation. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. And so he texted, cause he, you know, he can text and all that, you know, he texted his assistant to set up a coffee with me. Of course, when it came around, he canceled it. So it didn't work, you know, so we did this dance for a year and then he finally said, all right, I'm going to sit down. And when I asked him afterward, um, I said, so Barry, what, why'd you finally, you know, give me this interview? And he said, um, he said it was all about trust. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you kept coming back, you know, that you really wanted to do this. And so, you know, when I did interview him, it, and I've been doing this for so many years, Alex, it's, it, you know, you develop these instincts, right? So it's tough to like give, give you like a prescription for this. But the biggest thing is that you really listen. You totally listen and you also have a sense going in about who this person is and what they're, what's, what they're about. And you're trying to find out, well, you know, what's important to them? You know, who, who are they? And you have to, you have to be like totally open and that you, you're, you don't come in with any kind of tone or any kind of vibe that they are under a microscope and you're looking for what's wrong about them, you know, so that you can scratch them off your list. You know, you're, you're approaching it like, I want you. Let's figure out, you know, what, what you contribute, you know, and what we can contribute to you. And so, like you said, you know, you start out with trust, you know, that you're, you're all in on this guy until you're proven wrong. And he, you know, needs to feel that, that this guy's on my side already. I don't even know him, but I know he's on my side. And so you're, you know, so it, and we all have to remember, it's not so much what we say, but how we say it. You know, there are studies done where, you know, we know we can walk into a room and there's, let's say there's 10 people in there. And within about 10 seconds, our brain has already processed who we trust just from what our brain is gathering from everything about everyone in our, in our um, vicinity. So it, once you know that that person's brain is you know, just a twitch of a facial muscle, their brain is processing all of it. So you almost have to put on your like, I'm a totally open person. I, am, I already like this guy. I already wanna make this work. And they will pick up on that. And then they let their, you know, then they can relax and have a connection with you, right? And when you're recruiting, 
if they don't feel a connection with you, it doesn't matter if you feel a connection with them. Right. You know? So is that so, something that you do like, like a self-talk standpoint, like before you sit down, you're like, all right, I'm going to be completely open. I have this homework written down. I kind of have an idea of who they are, but at the end of the day, like you keep telling yourself, I'm going to be open to whatever happens here. I don't anymore because it's just natural, natural to me. And it's also natural to my personality, you know, that, um, you know, I always expect to like people always, you know, I always expect that I'm going to learn something from everybody I talk to. Um, but, but when you're new at it, yes, I think you have to make a conscious effort. You know, it's like an actor, you know, or, you know, when you're going on stage, it's like, okay, you know, I'm putting on, you know, my best open self, you know, and I want, you know, I, and not, I want to like this guy. I like this guy. I like what, I like what I'm seeing, you know, like you, you, you have to be authentic in order to be trustworthy. And, um, and like I said, that's, that is the key to everything in life is trust is establishing trust because nothing happens if you, and I don't have this in the book, but I've, I, I've kind of put this together since then. And it really is the military model that, you know, so you have interaction and you, you, the only way you build trust is through interaction. You know, you, you can't do it. You can't just show up and say, oh, okay, whatever. Or, you know, you, people trust you through interaction and without um, interaction, you can't have trust. Now the net, there are three stages to team chemistry and it's trust, bonding, and commitment. And until you have trust, you can't bond. There's no bonding with anybody unless you already trust them. And then there's no commitment without bonding. And the commitment isn't to the big purpose. The commitment isn't to, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna win the championship or you know, whatever it is. It's to commitment to each other. And that's what the military has known since the first army, you know, in whatever BC, is that they understand that once you've made that, co that commitment is not to God and country. It's, that's too nebulous. That's too, when you're on a battlefield, God and country is not motivating you. The guy next to you is motivating you. And once you are committed to each other, you know, you've established trust, you've bonded, and now you've committed to each other and just each other, then that's when you become this, and you saw this in the book, a just us team, which I got from the Golden State Warriors, that this group of people know that it's just us, we together, everything that each one of us contributes is going to achieve this really difficult, maybe impossible thing. And so your purpose again becomes each other. And now you've got it going. You have got it going. And it's not about your coach. It's not about your manager. It's not about anybody. Only players can create chemistry. Leadership can create the culture in which chemistry thrives, but the players have, the players have to create their own chemistry. Kind of going back to like how chemistry is so fluid and it creates itself. It's not static. I kind of yeah. want to touch a little bit on those seven archetypes that you came up with and, and the labels that you put on the different types of people that 
are in an organization, the warrior, the buddy, you know, the jester, all these different types of labels. But you mentioned kind of as you got to the end of it, you can't just assemble a team and pick, you know, four of these, three of these, two of these. They've got to create themselves because your role on the field is established, but your role in the clubhouse, in the locker room is going to be built up on its own. It's going to be organic. Can you talk about that a little bit, those those labels and, and just kind of go into detail on it? It's going to create itself organically. Yeah. And that was another aha moment in that. So I started to notice, and this is the one chapter that is not based on science at all. It, it was based on experience and talking to a lot of people in, in sports and in business. Um, that over the years, well, I did have a theory in the beginning of the book. I had all these theories in the beginning, but one of them was that team chemistry maybe is like actual chemistry, that you have a periodic table of all these elements and that when two elements come together, they create something new. And like, oh, that sounds like, well, why it's called chemistry, right? You know, we're, we're, we're creating something together. And so I like wrote down like 20, you know, different archetypes, you know, different personality types that, you know, would be great to have on a team. And then over the course of, you know, a few years, I, I, I narrowed it down to seven. And those are the seven that everybody I talked to said, oh yeah, I recognize that person, that person, that person, that person. And so that's what I ended up going with. And as you said, like, so somebody who is, let's say the jester, well, yeah, let's say it's the jester. So the jester, and I say guy, but I mean guy, I mean men and women, because I write about, you know, women's sports in there too, but I just use guy. So um, that guy um, is so powerful, a really good gesture is really powerful in a group because when the pressure is highest, a good gesture can sort of break the tension with a joke or with a needling of a, of a teammate. Um, and the gesture also can do a really crucial thing, which is give really tough feedback to a teammate but if it's wrapped in humor, you're, you're basically sending the message, you screwed up, but you're one of us. You know, don't think like, oh God, we wish you didn't have you anymore. No, you screwed up and you're one of us. And only in a really trusting culture can you really needle each other too. You know, that you can use that very male kind of humor where you're just constantly digging at each other, digging at each other, and nobody takes it personally because there is this culture culture of trust. And, and the other archetypes, as you said, you know, it's the warrior who is like a Barry Bonds or a Michael Jordan or, or a Mike Trout, you know, that they're sort of the, um, you know, the model for the best of our team and not the best like, person, but the best performer in our team. And we look, you know, Madison Bumgarner for the Giants during their World Series, you know, that is like the warrior. And, and, and the whole team feels like, well, as long as we have that guy, we got a chance, you know. Um, then there's the sage, you know, in, in sports, and I don't know if it's the same in business, but it's the, um, a very, very successful player who now is on the downside of his career, generally, and he's sort of grandpa, 
um, you know, come over here, kid, you know, I'll tell, I'll tell you, you know, don't worry about that and giving good advice. And he's the safe, he's a safe place to go because you know, you're always going to get like an arm around your, your shoulder. Um, and then there's the kid who comes in, you know, and, and, and I loved when we had a, a, a rookie player come into the clubhouse and you just see like, they either, or they either look like the new prisoner on the prison yard and like just trying to be really tough and nobody's gonna, you know, what, or it's the, you know, wide eyed, like, oh my God, you know, I'm in the clubhouse. I'm and in the big leagues. A, yeah. I'm in the big leagues. And, and there's a cappuccino maker in the dining, you know, room and, oh my God, this is, you know, I'm in heaven. And then, you know, the players who have been around a while, they feed off that energy. They remember like, oh yeah, this is a really cool thing to be doing for a living. And, you know, you, you want a little bit of that energy to be rubbing off on you too, when you're around those, the kid. Um, and then there's the buddy, you know, who is nobody eats alone. And there's always those loner guys, you know, maybe they're the one person from the Dominican Republic, or, you know, they're just, don't really fit in in any of the groups and come on, we're going out to eat. Come on, we're going to the movies. Let's go, you know, and not take a no for an answer. You know, you're forced into the tribe here. Um, and then there is what else? The enforcer. So the enforcer, when I talk to hockey people about the enforcer, they think it's the enforcer on the, on the ice, you know, <laughs> checking the guy into the side. Um, I said, no, the enforcer's in the locker room. And the enforcer is the guy that maybe not, he, he, his teammates may not like him a lot because he's always the one that's, you know, hey, we don't do it like that here. You know, he's the one that says what nobody else wants. Nobody else wants to disrupt, you know, this nice thing we have going. And the enforcer is hugely important because somebody's got to say it. Somebody's got to say, look, look what we're doing. We lost the last, you know, four games. Yeah, you may not think it's a lot, but here's what you got, you know, here's what we've been doing this, 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 that's going to turn into 10 games. And people are like, God, go sit down. You know, we're fine. We'll be fine. But in their mind, they're saying the guy's right. He's a jerk, but he's right. And every team needs to be, needs somebody there that holds them accountable right away. Um, who else is on my list? Spark plug um, is like big poppy with the Red Sox or, um, Hunter Pence with the Giants. He, he, it's the guy who in the moment, he can't do it all the time because he gets annoying. But in that moment, he's the guy who rallies the troops, gets everybody going and gets everybody believing. Yes, we absolutely are going to do this thing. Absolutely going to do it. And, and they all just ride on this spark plugs, you know, incredible belief and energy. And they all get, you know, taken into this bubble of absolutely let's, you know, drive and, um, and confidence and belief, but you can't be doing it every day. <laughs> you right. know, you have to pick your moments. You didn't and mention it. You, you didn't mention him, but one time in the book and he was my favorite player on this team. Brian Wilson absolutely was a jester, right? Like, uh, did yes. you, did you, how much time did you get to spend around him? Uh, maybe why, why was he not included? I loved Brian Wilson. I mean, he was a really, really bright guy. 
very religious. You wouldn't think that, but very religious and really bright and, and a total odd duck. But his teammates loved him. I mean, really loved him. And nobody on that field put out more energy and, and, and um, just total grit and ferocity than Brian Wilson. You know, he did have his downside on, on certain things because he would take things too far. And as he became more popular and more famous, he didn't necessarily wear that well. Um, so, so he was a jester in some ways, but he wasn't really an archetype jester um, because mm. he, he could also be a lot about Brian. And, and, and the jester is always, how can I, <clears throat> you know, how can I um, help the, the team and, and liven people up? But he was, he was very, very well liked, but he was such a complex, complex character that he, he was tough for me to kind of get my arms around as a character in the book. Because you couldn't really like put him into a box. Couldn't put him into a box. And, you know, there were, there were so many um, things that, yeah, that if I was going to write about him and you had to really write about him as, as who he actually is, um, you know, it just didn't fit in the narrative actually. Yeah. And the, in this chapter, you said every player on a good chemistry team is highly motivated to contribute to winning. His role on the field is prescribed. His role in the clubhouse is not. He has to discover it. He mm -hmm. gathers signals from teammates about what they value in him. They don't know they're filling the role. They just do it. So my follow-up is, you know, as we're putting these teams together and you had a chance to be around a, a couple of different ones that had success at a high level, how can organizations do a better job of, finding the right people, because obviously we don't need to build a team by selecting these different type of archetypes, but mm -hmm. the people drive the culture and the culture drives the people, right? So it's this yeah. flywheel. Um, everybody talks about in business, but you know, you talked about the leader sets the kind of the vision, but the players are the ones that really get the ball rolling. How can we do a better job of finding guys that are truly motivated to just winning and their teammates? Mm -hmm. You know, you obviously look at their experience, you know, look at their track record and, and um, you know, and for the most part, believe it, you know, the track record to a certain extent, you know, that who this person is and you talk to people who have been around this person. Um, I also think that you, you want to get the basic who this person is and what's important to them. Are they a team player? I mean, just basically, are they outward looking at their teammates and that and the team as a whole? Is that part of what they love about sports is being part of a team? I mean, it's a singular pleasure, really, to be a part of a team that does well. So does that person have that? Now, you know, we can never forget that team chemistry cannot create talent. So the number one, the number one thing you have to look at if you're creating a successful team is the talent of the player because you can get the most out of the talent that you get.
But once you take that person, you can't create a different talent. You know, they are who they are. But what chemistry does and what teammates do for each other is as Jake Peavy, the Cy Young pitcher says, my teammates summon a fight from me I can't willingly summon for myself, right? So what chemistry does is take what you have and then just elevate it to its maximum. So when we talk about um, these archetypes, so how are these archetypes useful if you're not gonna hire a jester? And at the, the way it's useful is for leaders, leaders like, coaches, managers, general managers, and also team leaders, if they're familiar with these archetypes, they can then recognize, oh, that's how this guy is contributing in a way that's not going to show up in a stat sheet. He's actually has a very important role in this clubhouse or this locker room. And as a, as a leader, I recognize it. You know, so I, he's the machine in a factory that makes all the other machines better. Like how much, how valuable would that machine be? If that machine is just doing its own output, right? Its own output never changes, but the output of all the machines around it go up, right? I'm paying a lot of money for that machine. So, so um, leaders need to recognize what they actually have in a player not just what shows up on the stat sheet. And the archetypes help them in that way to a certain extent, because these are the invisible ways and unofficial ways certain people are contributing. I'm sure there's a lot more ways people are contributing than just being the jester, the sage, the puppet, you know, these, these roles, but it gives you a sense of the ways your players, and once you recognize that that person has that value and that they are contributing in this, in this way, you can then nurture that and tell them, hey man, I see you. I see the impact you have. Well, now if I'm the jester, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know I'm the jester, but I'm thinking, wow, he really does see me. He does see my value. And it's not just the analytics. You know, and that's the thing I don't get about so many sports teams is they see analytics and chemistry as an either or. I got to pick a team, you know? No, the cutting edge leaders of today, whether in sports and business, are the ones that recognize that combination, that integration of analytics and chemistry because the analytics you can have the most brilliant strategy in the world from your analytics. And guess what? Your people have to carry out your strategy. So how are you going to make sure your people are as motivated and committed as they possibly can be to carry out your brilliant strategy? You know, it's the synthesis. The cutting edge leaders are synthesizers and really see the value in both and that you can't put a valuation on a player if you only look at the analytics. You have, you, you're, it's an incomplete valuation of a player if you don't consider how they influence their teammates. Who's the best or, or who are the best that, that you've come across in your research that integrate both analytics and team chemistry? Steve Kerr with the Warriors. 
Yeah. I mean, and again, I am not in a lot of people's front offices, so I don't, I don't necessarily know who's doing it really well, but I do know the Golden State Warriors with Steve Kerr and Bob Myers, their, their general manager, do it as well as it can be done. And, you know, they won all those championships. However, they had amazing talent too. Like you can't get past the fact, especially in basketball, you know, you have, you have three or four superstar players, you know, you're probably going to win, but you also, there can be a lot of jockeying for, you know, who's the stud, you know, who is the top guy here and that can get in the way of chemistry. So you do need to have somebody like Steve Kerr who totally gets the analytics and totally gets how these guys have to come together to make the most out of what they have. And also, man, these seasons are so long. I mean, 162 games for um, baseball. Was it 72 or something for the, or more, 92? I don't know how many in the NBA, but it's a lot. And you just think, how do you get from not being sick of each other? How do you continue to motivate each other? Because you're going to have these down times. And Steve Kerr is brilliant, just brilliant at that. He's so aware of the dynamics among the team at all time because he knows it has an impact on performance. It's not just, oh, well, it's fun to be together. No, it has a direct impact on performance. Yeah, that scene where, where he's just hands the, the clipboard to Andre Iguodala, just, that's, that's wild. It's wild. And he, and he can trust his own instincts. You know, when he talks about, I have to have other people talk because they're so sick of my voice. And he was a player for a long time. He got sick of his coach's voices. Like he really gets it from the inside out. Um, yeah, he's, he's extraordinary. Did you watch the last, did you watch the last dance? Oh yeah. Oh what, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what were your takeaways? Cause this, cause this probably came out right. Golly, this was like what a month after, after your book. Because your book, yeah. your book released in April 28, 2020. I don't even remember when The Last Dance hit, but I, I want to yeah. say it was after. It, yeah. Oh, it was definitely after the book came out, for sure. I don't know how much. But, I mean, two things. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dennis Rodman. I mean, talk about task chemistry. Talk about, you know, a Barry Bonds type guy, you know, eccentricity times a thousand though. Um, so there were two things just with the Dennis Rodman. One was his teammates, um, you know, kind of let Dennis be Dennis to a certain extent, but it was Phil Jackson who had total acceptance of Dennis. He really let Dennis be Dennis. He didn't say, look, you know, you know, you went off to Las Vegas and now you're going to sit, but you know, it's like, no, you know what? Nobody else is going to go off to Las Vegas like that. But Dennis Rodman needed to go to Las Vegas. Like it made a difference and he came back. And so instead of just saying, okay, that's a fine because it's on our you know, books and you're going to get a fine if you leave, you know, Phil Jackson just said, and talked to his team about it. You know, that's who Dennis is. And if Dennis is going to be on our team, we have to accept Dennis. Acceptance is, I learned a lot about acceptance with, with, by watching that. And I've read, you know, all of Phil Jackson's books. Um, that is such a huge part of leadership is recognizing what that player needs. 
right? I mean, somebody defined talent as delivering to the team what it needs. That's talent, right? That's a different definition of talent. And great leaders deliver to the team what it needs and deliver to every player what it needs. And there's that um, scene about the 1989 Giants with Kevin Mitchell, who you know was was literally a gang member in San Diego, and he's got the you know he's got the gold teeth and the you know all of the rest of it, and he's he was never a baseball fan growing up, doesn't know the history of baseball, you know, but but played because he was great at it. But he also played football and he loved football because he could hit people. <laughs> and one day in the clubhouse, you know, and and the way baseball works is that you know the manager posts the lineup in the clubhouse, you know, so everybody knows, you know, okay. I'm, whatever. And then uh, Kevin Mitchell says to a teammate one day, he says, I don't know, you know, the manager, Roger Craig, they, he called him, you know, hum baby. I don't know why hum baby, you know, puts my name in the lineup and he doesn't even ask like, you know, am I okay to play today? You know, which is totally ridiculous, right? Because you're assuming because you're getting paid every day to play that you're okay to play unless the trainer tells us, oh, you know, you got this wrong with you. But, and then the teammate goes in and tells Roger Craig, you know, Mitch is, you know, kind of out of sorts because you're not going to him before the game and asking him if he's okay to play. Most managers would say, tell him to go F himself, you know, like that's stupid. you're, You're a baseball player. So you go play baseball. But Roger knew Mitch well enough to say, this is all of his insecurity. This is something he just needs. So he goes out and says, hey, Mitch, how you doing today? How you, how you feeling? And, and Mitch would say, oh, you know, I don't know. You know, I got this knee is flaring up today. And then Roger Craig would just say, oh, Mitch, we need you. We need you. We're not the same if you're not in the lineup. All right, hum, baby. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Put me in. And he'd do it every day. Every day, Roger Craig would go and do that. And it's two seconds out of his day. And some of the teammates would say, God, he's so coddling, Kevin Mitchell. Yeah, he is. That's great management. Great management. Because that's what that guy needed. And he was MVP that year. That culture of trust and feeling value. Um, and this acceptance. Is, acceptance. acceptance. This, is, this has been awesome. Um, I feel like, um, you know, I want to go into even more, uh, but I don't want to ruin the book for people listening to the show. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, thank you for for taking this time to talk about all this. Um, this is great. Uh, what do you, what's next for you? I, I heard you on one podcast say there is no way I am ever going to write another book. Um, that's true. That is still true. I'm that's, never writing. That's, another- that's still true. Yeah, it, it it takes too much out of me. You know, I used to be able to do it a little bit more efficiently, and now. You know, the, the problem for me is now I just, there's no end to the digging. Like I would still be researching this book if Little Brown, my publisher, didn't rip it out of my hands and say, you have to turn the book in. It's like, yeah, but I just came across this other research paper, <laughs> you know, so I had to give it up. And I'm, I've become a very slow writer and, and it was torturous. I loved the research. I hated the writing. Um, so I just don't ever want to write another book. And, and yeah, I, I don't have a good process. I loved how it turned out. Loved, loved, loved how it turned out. But the process was really ugly on how, how it got there. So what I'm enjoying now is doing a lot of speaking gigs. 
you know, because I love the topic, as you can tell, I could go on for another two hours, you know, I mean, I love the topic of team chemistry. So I like to do the speaking gigs and, um, you know, I like my job with the giants. It's really fun. So, um, so for now, that's, that's quite enough <laughs> for me until, and this will happen someday. I don't know when, well, when it will happen, some idea will grip me. I won't go looking for it, but some idea will grip me and I won't be able to let it go. And then another book might come out, but believe me, I will be miserable the entire time <laughs> that I am in the grip of that idea. So, so 20, so 2030, the 20 year anniversary, of the championship team, we'll, we'll start, we'll start round two of team chemistry. Right, um, right, right. The last question I have, I meant to hit it earlier. How can we develop team chemistry during COVID and with the restrictions? Because it's yeah. changed, it's changed travel. Um, it's changed the way we operate on a day to day. Um, yeah. you know, our, our meetings aren't the same. We don't have everybody in one room. Um, like for instance, special teams, right? That's normally the start of our football kind of atmosphere. You get everybody in there. It's when the special teams coordinator, the head coach kind of dress the team, but you can only have a certain number of people in the rooms now. So we're break out into zoom meetings. So how, right. how can teams, you know, regardless of sport work, you know, business, whatever, how can right. teams foster that environment and do a great job of developing team chemistry during this time period we're in? Well, I think, you know, um, kind of counterintuitively, I think that Zoom um, or any of these kinds of platforms have some built-in um, qualities that, that sort of help with the social-emotional connection. One is that when we're in meetings around a conference table or, you know, in football, maybe you're, you know, sitting in rows and, you know, there's a whiteboard up there or whatever it is, um, you know, people can be fiddling with this and they're, you know, maybe talking to each other sometimes or they show up late, whatever it is, there, there can be some disruption. And here, the only way Zoom works is for us to sit still in one place. We look each other in the face, right? We're not, you know, just swinging by somebody's office and then, oh, I got something else to do, I'm moving. No, it's a dedicated time we are going to sit here with each other. Um, we see like if we're, if, if we're Zooming in somebody's home, we're kind of getting a little bit like you're not, you know, cause I see all your, are you home? I'm, I'm home, yep. Your home in your office at home yes yeah because you've got your little whiteboard and you can see you know you're keeping all these notes and that sort of thing so you get a little bit like mine you can't really see but i've got like a whiteboard that now no longer whiteboard i've got all kinds of pictures and notes to myself up there but um you kind of see a glimpse into people's lives that you wouldn't if you're just all at work and so you can start connecting in in different ways than you would have you also, like especially leaders, can, can really touch base and just say, how is it going? What's going on? You know, last time I talked to you, your dad, you know, was showing some symptoms, you know, how is he doing? You know, or, you know, just any kind of like personal thing that if you're in an office, it might feel like prying or you might not even know enough to ask that question. And also to reinforce that, hey, dudes, like, 
what we're doing here is really difficult to be developing this sense of team when we're all remote and we're all in these little boxes. But we're, you know, but you call people out on doing a really good job of it. You know, like I saw you were able to do this productivity thing and that's really, really hard. And guess what? Hardship creates bonds. You know, hardship is the most efficient way to bond with, you know, and that's why there's boot camp, you know, for the military, because it's really hard. So like not to ease up on the hardship, you know, like this is part of what's going to make us like unbelievable when we are together, because we put forth this incredible hard work to keep connecting with each other and to encourage you know, to have deeper conversations offline, you know, to just say like, let's talk about something other than football. You know, let's, let's check in everybody. We're going to check in with everybody. So we're connecting as human beings, not just, you know, okay, you know, you're the long punter and you're the, you know, whatever. Um, I don't think it's called a long punter, is it? But, you know, long, long snapper. You combine two, long snapper and punter. Long snapper and punter, yeah, something, something like that. So anyway, to really, you know, and again, like, I think we really connected over Zoom. Like, I feel like I really know you, you know, in a way that you wouldn't think we could know each other just by Zoom. But I think we're both open. You know, we, we kind of followed the conversation wherever the conversation led. You know, and and so it's not, we don't have to be as uh, as narrow and um, and siloed as Zoom is, right? You know, we can rise above the, the restrictions of Zoom and say, I'm gonna be my full self and I'm going to really connect with these other people as people. And that is what's going to help. And everybody's going to do their work, but that's what's going to help you when you are together because you've had this these connections that hopefully like you didn't even have before. Yeah. You know, so you can really, really take advantage of Zoom in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you again. This this was a lot of fun. And I, I really do. I do Good. look forward to staying in touch. Good. Yeah, definitely stay in touch. Tell everybody you know about the book. Yes. Make everyone read it. Like all your coaches, all your, everybody, you know, I know. So uh, assign it as actually like the Diamondbacks made it their book group. Like they had a book group at the Diamondbacks. And so like uh, all the baseball ops guys read it and then they would get together every Tuesday on Zoom and talk about, okay, the first three chapters and the next three chapters. And then they had me on for their final book group. And we talked about the book because then they had all read it and they'd all talked about it among themselves. And that was like super fun. And, um, you know, I'd love for more teams to to do that. I think it'd be a fun way to um, learn about team chemistry for them. I got so it. Anyway, I, I like I like that homework assignment. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, Alex, stay in touch. Um, you know, enjoy, you know, hopefully everything will open up pretty soon. You know, when does a uh, spring football start so we'll start at the beginning of march so we're going to go really this was our first week so we'll go four more weeks of kind of off-season winter training Um, okay and then we hit the ground running so it's it's a fast turnaround yeah it is a fast turnaround and you hope everybody did stay in shape well you'll find out oh yeah soon enough 
Yeah. <laughs> All right, Alex. Good luck with the recruiting. And um, and thanks. You, you did great questions. You clearly read this book backwards and forwards. And nothing makes an author happier than somebody who's read her book backwards and forwards. Hey. So thanks for that. Made was, my day. It was fun. Talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye.